Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello, and welcome to Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, uh, sitting here in my home studio in beautiful Portland, Oregon, and sitting across from me in the studios in South Bend, Indiana, the campus of the uni- my alma mater, University of Notre Dame, is uh, not only a man I consider one of my closest and dearest friends, but a man of virtue, a man of integrity, a man of letters, and the man who selects the numbers for Powerball, Ken <laughs> Hellenius. Ken, how are you doing, my friend? I am well. And you think you think I would choose my own numbers at some point, get a little something out of the deal. <laughs> I, I, you know, that would be, uh, what's that, that uh, old joke prayer, Lord, give me the opportunity to prove that winning the lottery will not change me. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, that's great. That's great. Turns out in order to win so, Powerball, you have to buy a ticket. So uh, that would yeah, explain why I never true. win. <laughs> yeah. I, I, God, I don't even think I've... I'm trying to think, have I ever bought a lottery ticket? Uh, so we... I don't you, ever remember buying one. I, may, I Maybe I did, maybe in my 20s, but... I don't remember. We need to bring in a uh, an expert on the uh, because I know you know theology. We we talk about games of chance. We talk about you know games of skill and things like that. And I would love actually to have a theologian or a philosopher kind of explain how those things work in relation to our faith. You know, in terms of you know everybody always prays. You know, Lord, you know, pick my numbers this time, or you know, this is the time, or <laughs> or or even Lord, you know. Make my team win, you know, whatever it may be. I think it'd be really particularly interesting at some point to to learn a little bit about what the church teaches about games and chance and and destiny, all all these sorts of phrases that we hear a lot about. Maybe we're we're going to need to find an expert to to bring in Deacon. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, I like that. I, I if like only that. I worked at a university and I could have access to to people that might have have knowledge on that question. I'm going to have to do a little, <laughs> little outreach here. That's good. Well, friend, uh, we're into the month good. of June now, month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, traditionally devoted to the Sacred Heart. Uh, and uh, um, so we had a fantastic month devoted to Our Lady, the month of, of May. And now we're to the Sacred Heart, which is one of my favorite devotions. I It's particularly... Uh, of course, you know, it's a devotion that we owe a lot to, um, you know, uh, St. Mary, Margaret Mary Alacoque, uh, who was a French nun, a visitation nun. Uh, but it actually goes back quite a ways. Uh, we think, of course, of Gertrude the Great, the Benedictine nun who uh, uh, is also devoted to the Sacred Heart and who writes about the, the Sacred Heart in her own kind of um, mystical writings. She was a, a, a mystic herself. I think of the Sacred Heart being very much, you know, not only representation of the love of Christ, but anytime I think about somebody who, and I hear about somebody who's had a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, my immediate thought is to pray to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Because physically, these represent, these body parts do represent the love of Christ and the tender love and and care of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, But they're also 
they're also, you know, when you're talking about a heart attack, we're talking about an actual physical body part that each of these had, right? You know, that Christ in the incarnation had all the same body parts as you and I. And he blessed them by becoming incarnate in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that's just something that I often think about when I think of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is that he truly had a heart that pumped blood, you know, and that represents his love for us in the incarnation. Yeah, absolutely. I love that image. That's beautiful. And the heart is leb in Hebrew, and the heart is con- it was considered not only the organ that pumps blood, but it was called the seat of the will. That was a place where your desire for God lives inside of you, is in your heart. Mm-hmm. I love that. So when you unite your desire for healing with the through the intercession of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I think that's a, a beautiful uh, connection there. I will take from their their hearts. I will take their stony hearts from them and put natural fleshy hearts within them, says uh, Christ. Well, says ultimately the Holy Spirit reveals this, of course, in the in the prophet uh, is it Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Love that. Well, happy month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus to you. All right. Wonderful. Well, Deacon, we have spent well, uh, the last couple of weeks talking about the uh, fathers and doctors of the church. We've been kind of moving forward in history. Uh, last week, we chatted about Cyril of Jerusalem, who dies in 387. And uh, we're going to tonight meet uh, one of the greatest of the fathers and doctors of the church, a guy so great that we actually use that as a title for him. So who do we meet tonight, Deacon? St. Basil the Great, also called Basil of Caesarea. Uh, so he was born in 330, right around 330 AD. He uh, <laughs> he lived in another guy that lived a life of dissipation. I don't know what it is with these guys, man. <laughs> you know, before they become Christians, they just go out there and just, it wasn't the expression, sow their wild oats or whatever it is. Yeah. So he was not living as a man of God at all, not even close. Um, but he ended up becoming an attorney. He practiced law and he taught rhetoric in the secular world. And then he had a conversion experience and he would write about it. I had wasted much time on fallacies and spent nearly all of my youth in vain labor. You know, so, so again, this is hope for parents whose kids are away from the church. Here's yet another father of the church who didn't live his faith well, his par- I think his parents were pagan too, but for <laughs> us today, we our kids don't live the faith the way that we hope, but yet we, we pray for this encounter with the living God. We pray for this conversion of heart, right? Metanoia means to, to turn your mind around. So this conversion of mind and heart. He said, suddenly I woke up as if out of a deep sleep, and I beheld the wonderful light of the gospel truth. And I recognized the nothingness of the wisdom of the princes of this world. You know, and that reminds me of St. Paul. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may know what is God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, so he he took those words to heart. Wow. And uh, so he is a part of a trio called the Cappadocian Fathers. Okay, so him, uh, Basil the Great, along with his younger brother, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and his best friend, St. Gregory of Nanzianzen. Yeah, so the three of them are considered the Cappadocian fathers 
Uh, he, Basil particularly is known for two things. One, along with Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzen, developing of Trinitarian theology. Okay. So it's really those three guys in the early church that helped us to understand the relationship of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So those three guys helped us to develop our understanding. And he's also known for his tremendous outreach to the poor. And he's considered by some to be, in a sense, the one of the fathers of Catholic social teaching, especially when it comes to the outreach to the poor. Oh. And I did not know that about about uh, Basil, uh, when I was when I was so when I was researching for the episode today, I was like, "Wow, I, I never knew that wow, about yeah. him." No, so, I see, never again, heard it either. This beautiful connection of mind and heart. So he's not just a brilliant theologian; he also had a wonderful heart for service. So he, he not just taught people about Jesus; he also got down and washed their feet. You know, so I love that we're, we're able to, to do both. It's both and, not either or in the Catholic Church. Yeah. You know, and I, and I don't like today when people do that. They'll, they'll say like, well, John Paul II was the intellect, but, you know, Pope Francis is the, the pastor, you know, like, uh, you know, and like, well, wait a minute. Come on. You got to look at the whole picture here. You know, um, John Paul II also washed the feet of people. Um, he went to prisons and, and went out to the poor and washed their feet, just like we see Pope Francis doing. It's just that we see the emphasis is different, right? Sure. sure. But, but again, it's both and. And he also, Basil, fought against Arianism. So even though he was born after the Council of Nicaea, and it, as we talked about before, uh, Arianism continued for many, many years, decades afterward, as well as semi-Arianism as well. And he fought diligently uh, against that. Uh, I have a, I have a so question for you had, about that, actually, Deacon. Is yeah. why do you think Arianism was such a persistent heresy? Yeah, I think people had a problem of figuring out how Jesus, who was fully human, can also be fully divine. How could God, the omnipotent, all-powerful God, become fully human without losing anything of His divinity? That, that just stymied people. That just baffled them. You know, that, in a sense, it didn't make sense to them, right? right? And so, of course, the church understands that through the hypostatic union, where Christ in his human nature was uh, joined to a divine nature, his divine nature without any, uh, what you call the four negative adverse, right? Without any confusion, change, separation, or division. He didn't lose anything of his divine nature, didn't lose anything of his human nature, but they were both united uh, in a unique way in the person of Jesus Christ. So he was a human, he was a divine person, right? But he wasn't a human person because his person comes from the fact he's the second person of the Trinity, but he had a complete and perfect human nature and a divine nature. See, so it's wrestling and struggling with that, with, with understanding how all that worked. Like I said, I don't think Arius deliberately tried to lead people away from the church. I think he was just trying to understand how can this happen. And in his mind, well, he can't be fully God because how could God be his own creation? So they were trying to find a compromise. I think that's why it lasted so long. And that's important because today we have people that, not Arianism uh, revived, but in a sense denying Jesus's divinity, you know, or trying to make him into a social worker and not God. You know, right. people with agendas that are trying to take Christ and, and parse him out 
you know, they only see Christ through through this particular lens. And so, um, again, both and, right? right. We, need, we need to see Jesus in his fullness. And that's what these uh, Basil the Great and uh, Greg of Nyssa and Greg of Nazianzi helps us to do. Now, um, with regard to his uh, teaching on the Trinity, um, he taught the Father is the principle of all things and the cause of being of all that exists, the root of the living. You know, I, I like that, the root of, you think of a plant, right? You know, um, you talk about Nazareth, Nazareth in Hebrew means the, the shoot of a plant, you know, the sprout of a plant. And um, uh, and here he says the Father is kind of the root of everything that exists, you know, the, the root of all the living. Um, then he says the Son is the image of the Father's goodness and seal in the same form. So again, he shares the same divine nature, but he images and says, so like Jesus says in John's gospel, when you have seen me, you have seen the father, right? He's not the father, but because to share the same nature when he's the image in a sense of the father, um, because with his obedience and his passion, the incarnate word carry out his mission as redeemer of man. Then he says the Holy Spirit, uh, he reveals to us that the spirit enlivens the church and fills her with his gifts and sanctifies her, makes her holy. So we see this, this beautiful early development of Trinitarian theology. Yeah. Again, which is one of the foundations of our faith. You know, we, we call it the, not, not just the positive faith, scripture, and tradition, but these are the, um, in the hierarchy of truths, these are the foundational truths. So the Trinity, the incarnation, and grace. Are, are, and everything else that we believe builds on those three things. And so the Trinity is one of those foundational teachings, and that's why we're so grateful to the, the gifts of, of St. Basil the Great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, you mentioned also, you know, that he had this great devotion to, or not just devotion, but practice of supporting the poor. One of the things that I think of when I hear Basil the Great is, I know that he also had something to do with the foundation of monastic life, correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh, it goes a couple of things. There's so much to say about this guy, right? Right, right, right. So let's, so, so let's talk first about this, this social doctrine. Sure. So um, he's considered one of the, I said, the fathers of church uh, social doctrine, and it flowed from his understanding of solidarity and the Eucharist. So that's where his development of his teaching came from. So what he emphasized was that we are all brothers and sisters. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all one in Christ. And so we have to help one another and cooperate uh, as members of the one body. And it's the Eucharist that unites us, right? It's the Eucharist that makes us one. And so flowing from that, he said, you know, we need the Eucharist to preserve unceasingly the memory of the one who died and rose for us. And that memory makes possible this gift of unity within the church. And so he would he would actually encourage people to receive the Eucharist every day, you know, to go to Mass every day and receive the Eucharist as often as possible, particularly young adults as well. You know, wow, so yeah. he would strongly encourage them. And it was that mission then to take Jesus out and be witnesses of that Eucharistic faith to the world. And that was really what impelled him to the, to, to the service of others, it was really a flow from the Eucharist. And he's also considered, as you mentioned, the father of Eastern monasticism. Uh, you know, we, we have St. Benedict as the father of Western monasticism. 
St. Basil the Great is considered the father of Eastern monasticism. And he had a very strong influence on St. Benedict. In fact, St. Benedict in his rule says, you know, in addition to this rule, there are many, many other wonderful documents we can draw from, including the rule of St. Basil the Great. You know, uh, so so St. Benedict specifically mentions him in the rule. So St. Benedict read the rule of Basil the Great in writing his rule for, for monks. So even the Western church recognizes uh, the great contribution of Basil the Great. In fact, there's a congregation of St. Basil. There's a religious order in the Roman uh, right. church uh, called the Congregation of St. Basil, which exists to this very day. It's not a huge congregation, but they uh, exist to live out, again, this um, the mind and the heart, right? this Eucharistic-centered life, which then goes out and helps the needy and the poor. Yeah. I know that the Basilians are um, have a strong presence in Canada, if I remember right, kind of in, in Toronto, I think, yeah. is where they are. Interesting. That's correct. Um, you mentioned that Basil was part of a triad of uh, of really awesome dudes, the Cappadocian Fathers. He uh, so it's Basil and two Gregories, right? Um, tell yep. us a little bit about about that. Okay, so actually, what's interesting actually is Basil has several siblings, uh, brothers who are all saints. Uh, <laughs> the most recognizable one is is Gregory of Nyssa. And so his brothers, when they saw the power of their brother's conversion, led them to faith in Christ as well. So again, this trickle effect of, of families, right? You have one person that comes to faith. Me and my own family, that was true as well. When I came, when my father came back to faith, one of my brothers had been away from the church forever. He was just so angry. But when my father came to faith, first of all, he didn't believe it. But when he discovered the truth, of my father's conversion that led him back to the church. Wow. Right. So we see yeah. the same thing here with Gregory. And so um, when he when he came to faith, St. Basil wanted to study more about the faith. So he went off to do his studies, and that's when he met St. Gregory of Nancy Anzin. And they had tremendous respect for each other almost right from the start. So the three of them together were lifelong friends, although Basil didn't live very long. You know, uh, his gifts were recognized very quickly by the church, and he became the bishop of Caesarea. Uh, but he, he died in 378. Okay. So he was only 48 years old. Wow. So he actually lived within the lifetime of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Right, yeah. Who was so born he was before born him after and, died, and after. died before him. Yeah. 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 So okay. so, uh, so he, didn't, he didn't live very long. But again, his contribution has been uh, recognized tremendously throughout the uh, throughout the life of the church, even to this very day. Yeah, I mean, what's crazy is I'm I'm now 49, so I'm older than Basil the Great was when he passed away. That's a that's what a loss, and yet what an impact that he's had. Because here we are, gosh, 1700 years later, still talking about him. So. Good job, Lord. You, <laughs> you you choose some great saints, and you make some great saints. Yeah. You know, one, one of the erudite that I found that was very interesting of what Basil did, he didn't forget where he came from. Remember, so we, I read that little quote in the beginning of the episode today about his conversion experience. So he wanted to also help the youth. Um, he saw the youth as society's future, not just the future of the church, but the future of society. And so when he addressed young people, 
he talked about they have he, he wanted to be an example of virtue to them so not just teach them about virtue so they can actually see how virtue is lived out uh so he he gave examples of upright living but he also encouraged them to search for truth and one of the ways that he encouraged them to search for truth was by taking advantage of the classical authors right the classical authors this critical an open approach to discernment of truth, because he said it's in that discernment of truth that they find their true freedom. So freedom is not license to do whatever you want. Freedom, true freedom, authentic freedom comes from the pursuit of truth, which he thought was through the pursuit of the classical authors. And so I was thinking about that. I said, look what's happening today. We have, in a sense, this resurgence of classical education right among people of faith right so we have like the chesterton academy mm-hmm. we have regina chaley you know which is another classical model we have the trinity academy yeah you know which uh, all, all those are models of return to a classical education so when you learn about math you don't just get a math book and you sit down and learn math you actually learn about the philosophers who developed math you know, so yeah, yeah. it's 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 a really wonderful approach, and I love this about Saint Basil the Great because he's doing what is so desperately needed in our in our church and our culture today: teaching young people not what to think, but how to think logically, critically, analytically, not with their emotions, because we got so many young people who are being fed a lot of rhetoric and are just espousing things that they're hearing from their professors, they're not looking, discerning critically, analytically in that beautiful search for truth. And that is a huge piece, I think, that's missing, especially uh, in higher education um, today. Uh, um, uh, And I think uh, restoring Basil's approach is one of the ways we can uh, get our young people to really be on fire for the Lord once again. So it's not just about you know, um, music at mass and, and doing all these gimmicks to attract young people. It's really allowing them to see and focus on the beauty of truth, truth, goodness, and beauty, transcendentals. Yeah. Encountering the, because the truth is itself attractive. You know, we heard, uh, I was chatting with Professor Robert George at Princeton, whom we gave the Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae medal to. And, and I asked him about whether or not he had hope for the future. And he said, look, when we present the truth, whether that be a truth revealed in the sacred scriptures or, or a truth that we've come to understand uh, through reasoning and through conversation and, and dialogue and debate, um, a truth that, that can be... Um, pointed to is itself uh, that, that can actually reveals itself as attractive and when we present it and we're not afraid to share the truth the truth about the dignity of the human person every person is created in the image and likeness of god and inherently rights are not something that you know the the right to life is not something we give but it is something that is inherent in the the person uh, him or herself that truth is attractive and when we're unafraid to proclaim it, it actually draws people to itself. And that that then is a sign of great hope because you can't suppress the truth when people are willing to, to fight for it um, and, and to suffer for it. This is what makes 
the martyrs attractive as well, right? This is why so many of the early church fathers that we've talked about end up either how many of the bishops ended up exiled from their sees because they were proclaiming the truth and somebody else didn't like it, and so they drove them away. I'd rather not hear that. They essentially, back in the day, even as today, you know, deplatformed or canceled people. Yeah. <laughs> but what what ends up happening is that the truth wins out. The truth of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection, the truth in our day and age of the dignity of every human person triumphs no matter no matter whether it's the most popular teaching or not it still is true and that's one of the beautiful things about somebody like basil the great who um, as you say he was a young man i mean dies at age 48 but his teaching remains attractive and it remains the basis for as you say catholic social teaching Eastern monasticism, the, the very life of the lifeblood of the church is, is especially the contemplatives who pray for the church, who pray for each and every one of us who's like active in the world. It's the contemplatives who are basically talking face to face with God. Those are the ones who are really um, kind of the heart of the church. Gosh, we're back to the idea of the heart again, right? Uh, the sacred heart of Jesus, yeah, see? the heart of the church. <laughs> Beautiful. Yep. You know, and, and one thing I've noticed, too, um, in, in speaking to young people around the world, you know, um, is that I, I hear from them all the time. I want to hear the truth and I'm not hearing it. Yeah. I hear that constantly from young people. So Basil's right. I mean, there's this desire and yearning for truth. And but, but what our culture has done, reduce truth to a social construct yeah. or do truth to virtues, virtue signaling. You know, um, that's not truth. Truth ultimately is a person, Jesus Christ. That's what Basil discovered, and that's what we need to help our young people discover today. A deep, intimate, personal, loving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is truth. Amen. Well, Basil the Great, pray for us. I mean, seriously, we, we yes. need your, your helps and your prayers. Deacon, we've run out of time again, as is our custom, but I'm so delighted to have met Basil the Great through you. And when we pick up our conversation next week, guess what? We're going to talk about yet another one of the Cappadocian Fathers. I think we're going to talk about one of the two Gregories, since there are only two other Gregories in the Cappadocian Fathers. It kind of makes <laughs> lucky guess, right? But uh, until we do that, we invite you to connect with us uh, on Facebook. You can find us on Living Stones Media. You can also download previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com. But until we gather next week, Deacon, might we have a blessing? Well, mighty God bless you and keep you and protect you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.